Welcome to Inside the Vault, the payment security podcast, a show from Very Good Security. This is a show for fintech builders and leaders looking for a deep dive into the intersection of payments and data security. You're about to hear a conversation around payments, fintech, data security, and more. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Inside the Vault. Joining us today, we are super excited to have payments veteran, Matt Daju. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I am also very excited about this. Amazing. Okay. So before we kind of jump into the meat of the episode, Matt, can you give us a little bit about your background? I know you've been around payments for a long time and sort of how that journey took you to where you are today. Sure. So I I started actually semi-accidentally. I was at a staffing job that I took moving back with a friend. And one of my customers happened to be this super small boutique platform that really did some awesome things, the way that they looked at payments, the way that they looked at bringing on companies. And I got to join one of those customers, or one of my, my staffing customers on the sales team. They were growing so fast that I got to kind of join a couple different teams. I got to join a high risk team. Then I got to join a team where we're bringing on like companies with significant growth, online services, and then working on some of our enterprise customers like uh, Hulu and, and, you know, some of those larger customers where you really have to be strategic bringing them on. You can't always save them money. So you had to think about bringing on those customers in a very strategic way. And one of our our focuses was a payment strategy. How can you grow their revenue? What can you help them with other than saving money? Because everybody's going at these guys trying to win their business saying, we can save you a couple of basis points. And that story kind of kind of gets stale. So we looked at payments wildly different and then joined a number of different payment platforms. And then my last job in sales was essentially called the Payfact team. And that's teaching other software companies how to become a payments company and incorporate payments into their company so that their customers could also process payments on behalf of your software. Then again, I joined one of my customers to build out a payments team for them. And the rest is history. I've kind of joined a few different software companies from there doing the same thing, launching payments within a software platform. Awesome. And your current, your current role, what exactly do you do day to day? Yeah. So even in my current role, it's actually evolved significantly. So when I first started, it was super simple. Hey, can you build out payments here in the US? Our customer is, you know, on the small SMB side, you know, small volume. Their designer is looking to collect payments for, you know, kitchen projects. Six months later, we merged with the absolute whale in the industry that's that's in every country. They're in every big box retailer on the back end, either that we might be white labeled. And now we're trying to figure out, all right, how do we get this global? Fast forward another three months, we started buying other platforms. And now my day-to-day job is when we buy a company, how do we take on those payments customers? How do we merge them into our payments plan? How do we have a growth strategy? How do we scale this with all the platforms that we have? So I'm, I'm technically on the, the M&A strategy team now versus just strictly payments. Got it. Very cool. And so something that you said that I kind of want to double click on, I think everyone in the payments industry or the lion's share people in the payments industry, it's all about optimize your payments, lower the cost, everything sort of like race to the bottom. You take a very different approach. So how'd you kind of get to that way of thinking about payments and how does it resonate with people? 
if they understand it and if you're clear in your message, it resonates really well. I probably can't say that list of companies just because there were our NDA that we did that for. We used to build out this really complicated finance guy, ended up ultimately building it out. But what we used to have was a here's what you're you're paying in, in, in for, for your cost of payments. And here's some revenue strategies, whether it's back then it was something called like a card updater, which is like the old system would be like you send in a batch of cards that could fail. We'll go to the card networks and update them and then retry those cards. The platform we work for had a number of, of things that would do instead of waiting for it to fail, automatically go out to the card networks and looking for updates before the billing cycle. Another thing that they would do is they would try a retry logic that at the time was very, very you know forward thinking that was <clears throat> based on this card, when should we retry it? You know, if it's a debit card, when are people get when do people typically get paid? You know, and look at certain certain key details. Now a lot of the payment platforms do that. Back then we incorporated that into almost every new customer that we brought. So even if we charge them the same or sometimes in some cases a little bit more, we were really focused on how much more money can we bring you based on your payments? How, what, 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 can we, what else can we do to help you make more money, keep you know, customer retention and things like that? Aside from sort of the adding revenue piece, I know sort of going back to the idea of a payback, a lot of people do sort of consider when is the right time to become a payback? I think there's kind of debate around if it's like a hard, fast number or not. What's your viewpoint in terms of when does it make sense to become a payback? And then maybe when does it not make sense to become a payback? That is so funny you asked me this question because I do consulting on the side and that's the million dollar question. Everybody says, all right, if I'm doing a billion dollars, if I'm doing, and every consultant's probably going to tell you something a little bit different. Some consultants will say they want you to do it because it's, it's almost endless money for the consultant. Because if you go to that super complicated route, they're going to need you through every step of the phase for probably a number of years. I look at it differently. I really try to get them to go more of the what's called like the, the ISV route, where you don't go through all the licensing and regulation. You can kind of limit your exposure to a lot of the compliance needs and regs on that. And you can come up with a very similar revenue model, maybe not as significant, but it gets you there because you're lowering your costs quite a bit. So I don't necessarily look at it as once you really reached a billion dollars. I really look at it. What, what, what is your business model and why, why is that your main focus to become a pay fag? What, what, what I look at is what's your goals? If it's goals to go to get more control, why can't we just look for the back end partner to give you that more control? And for me, I, I usually, unless you're going to like your main business model is to become a payments company. That's where it starts to make sense. You're, you're looking to be the next PayPal. You're looking to be the next Stripe, Braintree or, or whoever it may be. If your main goal is to grow your software platform and payments is a is a revenue silo and within that all your other revenue silos, it generally doesn't make sense in my personal opinion. Got it. And when do you think is like, aside from becoming a payments business overall, is there any other time when you think it makes sense to become a payback? If you're at a payments company in, in, or a software company and you, you fully understand the risk, you fully have the resources, customer service, a compliance team. I worked at a company previously where you already had an underwriting team because we had like a financing arm. So that's where it kind of made sense to go through that that model. When we looked into everything, we almost sold a little too quickly where putting all those R&D dollars to be able to become a payback didn't quite pan out because we sold a lot quicker than we, we thought within our growth model. But if you take a step back and you have a lot of those internal resources that you don't have to build out 
X number of different departments, like I had mentioned, that that's where it could make sense as well. And I know that you spent time sort of focused on e-com payments back in like 2012. Now fast forward to 2022, 10 years. Do you think e-com payments have sort of come a long way? Like what do you see as things that have really improved and then maybe some areas where you think there could be a little bit more improvement? That's a really good question. So in some ways, it's it's kind of the old, it's just, here in the US, credit cards, it's just, it's prevalent. If you look outside of the world, a lot of the markets for finance tend to follow the European market. So you start to see, like you're starting to see even now, you, you, it's, they've been talking about this forever, but companies are just starting, even the big payment platforms are starting to talk about like, uh, like real-time payments, where essentially you're a merchant, could be a restaurant, it could be, could be you know, hotel, whatever it is, they take a payment and they can get paid almost immediately. The U.S. was for a long time really trying to figure out how do we manage this? How do we set root regs around all this? So that's some of the exciting stuff that, that you're starting to actually see here locally in the U.S. That's, you know, outside of the U.S., you're, you're going to see all these bank transfers that have been prevalent for God knows how long. Here in the U.S., we're a lot slower to adopt or adapt to, any, to, to anything new. The, the, you know, the Federal Reserve has to figure it out. They usually have to get their money into it. Visa, MasterCard are going to try to either buy a platform to try to keep their their hands in the money pot over there. So evolve-wise, there has been slightly new payment methods. We're even starting to see now like no more of the buy now, pay later even come over here to the U.S. where that's been prevalent for, for quite a while here, you know, outside of the U.S. We're also starting to see companies now try to look for payments companies that are global now and not just regionally focused as these software companies are starting to acquire Canadian customers or Brazilian customers or European customers. They don't necessarily always want to work with, oh, that's my Canadian bank. That's my European bank. And that's my, you know, Brazilian bank or whatever it's going to be. They, they're starting to look for platforms now that are more global. So whether it's your, your big role pay or now FIS processor, or it's, it's a PFAC that has multiple backend banking arms, you're starting to see that them now start look towards, all right, who can get me to scale globally? So it sounds like your take is sort of global provider wins, but maybe companies in the US could get on board in terms of like really making that happen for merchants. Yeah, and in support of just what else can you do outside of the credit card, whether, you know, if it's lending, if it's buy now, pay later, you're starting to see crypto even now. I don't know where that's going to go, but it's now, what can you do other than just credit cards? Got it. So maybe a little bit more room for advancement in terms of alternative payment methods. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Got Very it. well said. You, I give the long answer. You give the, the great recap. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do. You do the hard part because you don't. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So I know that in the ecosystem, a lot of people say that, and this is kind of touching upon what you do in terms of adding payments to people's businesses. There's kind of you know, feeling out there, maybe it's just in Silicon Valley in the fintech ecosystem, but that every company is kind of be going to become a fintech company. And I think part of that is can be as simple as adding payments. And so I know we touched on this a little bit with the payback piece, but maybe just payments in general. What are some good signals that you found in your career where it's like, hey, this business needs to add payments? And when do you think they avoid it? So Whenever I look at a software company, that's that's essentially ex before you know I'm talking to a recruiter or a business leader over there trying to figure out if that makes sense. 
Uh, first, I look at wh what is their business model and why would it make sense for, let's say, their, uh, their submergence, I'll call them, their, like that software company or that particular company's, why would that make sense for them to essentially move away from the, maybe their big bank they've been processing forever through Bank of America? Why would that make sense to stop doing that and then go to that software company for now their their software needs and their payments needs. Yeah, so I'll start to kind of reverse engineer. Does that business model make sense to me? Because even when I was at the big acquirers, that's kind of what I had to do when I would start to take on that new payback potential customer. You would hear, I don't know how many new pitches a week. And you'd say, everybody has this new great, great idea, this new revolutionary, you know, payments idea that to incorporate into their software platform. And most of them are just going to go nowhere. So you kind of start to kind of reflect back to your old, my old acquiring days of, I'd hear these, these ideas and, and certain ones just make sense. You know, what, what's their growth mode? I should say the growth plans, where are their customer base? What does their customer look like? And would that make sense to start building out like a, a like a payment arm? Could you see them using that? And a lot of times it's, does that payment flow make sense for their business model? Whether it's, you know, they're going to sign a contract and the next step is the pay. Does that help keep them in the software platform? I'll just use a software because that's generally what it is. Does that help keep them in the software platform and automate a process? Or does that add a step? Does that solve a, a problem for that software? And it should increase revenue, obviously, for the software company. But ultimately, what we are looking for is, does that eliminate a step? Does that help that poor customer? Are they going to see value in that that payment step being there? Or does it just make more sense for them to process with Wells Fargo or, or First Data, where they probably always have been for the last 20 years? It's great that you're consistent in your viewpoint in terms of like reducing friction, making it easier, not focusing so much on cost, which I think a lot of people in the payments industry actually do just kind of focus on costs. So I love that approach to things. Maybe to make you be not a glass half full person, but instead, is there like a payments horror story that you don't need to name names or something that you can think about that just sort of went sideways from a payments perspective that you might've been involved in? So <laughs> this isn't really around PayFAC or ISV, but uh, when I first started out in payments, I took on a lot of high risk. It's kind of the opening where the job was and my boss was really good about giving me leads, but he'd give me everything. It was, he wouldn't. Is this like gambling or like, um, oh, so tell us what high risk is. A lot of it was, it's it's called like the direct response market. Mm -hmm. And this is years, this is 12 years ago. I don't really operate in that space anymore. Nothing, not that it's wrong with it. It's not as big as it was as 12 years ago, but Think of those infomercials, whether it's like uh, this new fishing lure that's going to change the landscape of fishing or well, for a while it was um, the acai berry or something. And and then there was like some green berry that if you took this little pill for, for 30 days, you'd lose 30 pounds. Well, we were getting an influx of leads on this and the platform that we worked for, it was a huge revenue driver for us. We had huge margins on it and we were connected to all the fulfillment houses. So when you would look at, at these infomercials, I think we had 80% of the market or something crazy like that for infomercials. Like ShamWow is is one of them that we process for. I think I was trying to think of uh, Grill Daddy was one of my customers. I, don't, I think I can see some of these. Now they're all in Walmart and, and Target and probably not even through the same owner. But those guys were a very unique group of people. They usually had a lot of money behind them, investors. And because they operated in that high-risk market, 
rules almost didn't apply to them in their mind. So you would start processing for them. You had these huge numbers that marketing dollars behind them. So some of them, when they hit, you did very well. When some of those also hit, they were ridden with fraud. And these platforms, all of a sudden, you'd start to see an alarming amount of fraudulent charges. And sometimes even those those guys, they wouldn't let customers ref- get, get refunds on their money. So then you'd start seeing... Was it like friendly fraud type situations? Or can you dig into that a little bit? Sometimes it was. And sometimes they just wouldn't answer their customer service faults calls. So you couldn't return your product when you when you took this pill for 30 days and you didn't lose 30 pounds or whatever that... The 30-day money back guarantee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that almost never applied. Or you'd call and say, well, we'll give you 25% of your money back, but here's what we'll do. We'll sell you this, the upgrade of that, and then you get to keep your old one, but we'll only give you 25% off your next purchase. And they'd always try to resell you and never give you your money back. So we had a lot of those where they were just horrific. They would call uh, you know, us nonstop. Hey, don't shut off my mids. I know we have, we're ridden with fraud, but please don't. We, you know, we're, we have this slew of money coming through. So you're, you're seeing a lot of volume and everything sales dollars for you is like, oh, well, let's keep these guys on. But they're also ridden with fraud, operating completely poorly. So you have to, you would have to shut them off ultimately, or you get flagged from the card brands and maybe worse. That was one of them. Another one, we had this great software platform. The US business was phenomenal. It was a marketing platform. They had a version of their company that was outside of the US and they almost rebranded it. And it was all fraudsters and they would get cards and sell them off. And so we're processing for their, we started processing for a little bit of the U.S. business. And all of a sudden I was on a business trip and then I was taking a vacation right after. Well, I'm getting pinged from my compliance department that one of my customers is selling off credit card numbers. So that was an interesting one. Um, (laughs) And I've have a number of fraud stories where uh, fraudsters got a hold of our application link and did a number of different things with it. They boarded them. They boarded a bunch of fake mids. I was on vacation for two of those. Oh, so fraudsters, I think, had my vacation schedule. Yeah. And I would be on a beach somewhere or wherever <laughs> it was, and I'd get a call. We have $200,000 in fraud that just came through, and it's it's never fun. No, especially while you're on vacation. Is there anything that, like you've seen recently in the fraud space that you're really bullish on? Like, oh, this this would have solved that problem back then. Yeah, uh, boarding for sure. Checks and balances. Making sure these applications make sense. When you first, when I first started out in the software, you almost board everything. Let's figure out the, who the bad guys are once they start processing. Once I saw some fraud come through, I realized we got to start vetting platforms or new new applications coming in. So we, we did simple stuff to start checking against all Salesforce. Have we ever talked to these guys? We started getting website crawlers to check websites. So, you know, if it's a, I'll just use random, if it's a landscaping applying with us and they have nothing on their website about a landscape or they have something else. We ran into that with a marketplace that were selling uh, used equipment. And in addition to that, they would also do um, liquidation sales of if you know if somebody passes you know estate sales, and uh, a lot of those estates had guns, and we only certain banks can process for guns whether they're working or not. And then there's a, there's a bunch of 
gray area of what's a working gun, what's not, what's an antique gun. So you kind of just avoid it. So we would crawl websites for guns, language, talk, and then would pass those to a higher risk bank that could process for that. And then others were like working with platforms that would make sure if a billing in, in, in shipping address didn't make sense, if the IP address was outside of the US, you know, things like, does this make sense for, for these types of transactions? And we just started putting together risk models and parameters based on what we're seeing. Sounds like it was pretty manual at the time, though, to start, at least. To start, it was, yeah. yeah. And then we started, what we did was, uh, because of that, I built out a risk committee and a, fin- a, a, a essentially a pricing committee that I kind of learned about through one of the other companies yeah. that I worked for. I didn't manage that then at those companies. I, I would actually go to the risk and finance committee and say, or committee and say, hey, I have a gray, you know, application. Does this, can we get this with this pricing? I have a great new product. Yeah, for exactly. You. <laughs> I had plenty of those meetings. So I use that modeling based on what I've used in the past. And I built one out, my, my current opportunity that I have right now to start, it all went through me and I purposely partnered with finance and I said, hey, let's build out a risk and, and, and pricing committee. If something looks like it might be higher risk, let's charge a little bit more to make sure we're protected with margins and we, you know, we're, we're kind of protecting ourselves. And we put it together a lot of a lot of parameters. Does this make sense? If you do that on the front end, it saves you a lot of time and money on the back end. So it just every time you do this, you learn a little bit more of what to do to prevent something good to happen in the future. And you'll still see exciting challenges coming up. So I guess shifting gears and kind of wrapping it up, but like if you weren't working in payments right now. What industry do you think you'd be working in? So it's funny you say that. I was recently, I had a, I have a couple real close payments friends and we were recently on my back deck and, and we, we had multiple and we're, we had met discussing this. And I said, you know, my next exciting thing, I've, I've learned a lot in payments, but I really want to learn how companies buy other companies and be part of those teams. And so I've actually... I got to team up on a company, a software company that was purchasing another software company. And I got to run the acquisitions, the payments acquisition of that to figure out how much they're making, how much could we make under my new plan and build out like a payments plan on that. And because of that, I got to kind of join that strategy team. So I've kind of, I'm still doing payments still, but I'm really enjoying that. I've read a lot of books on, on like, growing through acquisition and and how to essentially, you know, change your business plan based on finding new partners and things like that. So I've really enjoyed that. If money wasn't and and all jobs made the same, I am a bike fanatic. I love biking. I've biked my whole life. So maybe it'd be road or a mountain. I had a lot more bikes. I just recently sold them, but I am a, I like single track mountain bikes. So like lots of rocks and roots weaving through trails and things like that. Okay. That's a huge yeah. passion of mine. I love it. My, my now seven year old son is starting to do it. So it's kind of like our due time. Amazing. If all paychecks were the yeah. same, you know, and, and, and whatnot, I'd probably do something like that. I don't, I don't know. I've never really thought about not doing payments. It's just, it's fun for me. I like it. But if, I, if you were to say, how would you turn one of your passions or one of your fun hobbies into a job, it might be something with biking. I love that. Being based in Northern California, we have... Sure. I don't You're do in it, the Mecca, the, the Pacific should, Northwest I think, up there. Um, I have I know. never made it up, but it's on a, my, my bucket list up there to, to bike up there. Yeah, it absolutely should be. Amazing. Cool. Well, I want to thank you, Matt, for your time today. I know that you've definitely had a lot of payments experience, but I think it's it's the type of stuff that we don't actually hear about every day and just sort of love your approach to how do you make payments additive as opposed to 
why is payments this big cost that I just need to drive to zero? I think it's a it's a positive way to look at it. So thank you for sharing your viewpoint and for joining our show today. And then to the listeners, you can always drop us a line at pod at verygoodsecurity.com if you have any comments on today's episode or if you have any ideas for us for future episodes. So with that, thanks again, Matt, and we'll see you all or hear you all or listen or talk to you all <laughs> next week. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Industry-leading companies, from startups to the Fortune 500, use VGS to protect the collection, storage, and exchange of sensitive payments data while maximizing its utility. With the VGS Zero Data approach to handling sensitive data, companies can achieve PCI DSS compliance and take control of their payment stack. To learn more, visit verygoodsecurity.com. You've been listening to Inside the Vault, the payment security podcast, a show from Very Good Security. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us to keep delivering the latest from the realms of payments and data security. Thanks for listening. Until next time.